0: I want to take a little bit of time to talk about um, some of the, give you an update on some of the things we've been praying about here at the congregation. Um, We've been praying for a brother uh, by the name of Von Kirk, who um, was diagnosed with colon cancer uh, a little more than a month ago, and he uh, had surgery, uh, I think it was about three weeks ago, and I've talked to him. The surgery was partially successful. They were removing part of his colon. Um, But he is now being moved to a long-term care facility um, to continue to manage any blockages. The cancer also had spread to his liver, and so he has um, plans to start chemo as well. It is a blessing that the doctors have a plan for him, and we want to continue to lift him up in prayer and pray for complete and total healing uh, for him. We hope to see him again at our congregation one day for sure also want to give you an update on Kristen Chippeau, who we were praying for, who was in an auto accident after Camp Yeshua. Uh, she is now back home after having surgery to repair her broken pelvis, but she has a long recovery ahead of her, and so we want to continue to lift her up in prayer, pray for strength for her mom, uh, who's taking care of her as well. Um, her father passed away about five years ago, so it's just her mom and her sister there, and so we want to lift them up, and they're up in Wichita, so they're not too far away um, and then for me, I know all the Camp Yeshua kids kind of feel like family as well, so we've been praying for them. So we, so I appreciate for sure joining together as a community and a fellowship and lifting her up in prayer. And I know there's a whole number of other prayer requests that we've been praying for on a regular basis. We often find ourselves praying in times of need, when times of distress, when something is going wrong, when we need healing, one of the things I want to encourage us to remember to do is to pray even, even in the good times, even in the times of peace, not just because things are chaotic and we always go to the Father when, when we need something, but we should be going to Him for all things. And I know we often, when we do prayer requests, we're talking about things that usually it's a need for somebody, and somebody finally reaches out and says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm hurting here in this place. So I want to pray for them, of course, and never, never turn that away. But I want to also remember and encourage us, hey, if everything seems like it's going well, continue to pray, continue to thank the Lord for the blessings that he gives to us in your families, in your home, for this congregation, whatever good things might be happening. We need to always remember to lift up our praises and prayers to him, even in the good times and the bad let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you on the Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for this fellowship, for this congregation, for all the people here in this place, Lord. We also lift up those that are not here, Lord. There's a number of us that are traveling at this time, um, whether they be at another event, whether they be um, just away on a trip, maybe it's a vacation even, Lord. Father, we pray for protection upon them, for anyone who might be traveling at this time. Protect them. Watch over them. Cause them to arrive safely at their destination, and we look forward to seeing them return here back to our community. Father, we lift up those that are in need. We lift up those that are in need of healing. Father, you are the author and finisher of creation. You know every cell in our bodies, Father. So, Father, I pray for our brethren, Lord, that are in need of healing. I pray that you mend the tissues that need to be mended. I pray that you would just repair any cell that needs to be repaired. Father, if there's anything that is not of you present in those bodies, Father, I pray that you would remove it in Yeshua's name. Father, I pray that even if it might be the hands of a surgeon or a physician, Lord, that causes the healing to take place, Father, I, we know and we praise you, Lord, that you are the reason for all healings that take place, Father. It's by your breath that we breathe each and every day, Father, and it's by your word that we live. And so, Father, I pray that we always give honor and glory and praise to you, for anything that happens. Father, we thank you for the good times and the bad. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings that you give to us here in this place. Father, we come humbly into your throne room by the blood of Yeshua, Lord, and we pray that our prayers always be a sweet incense in your nostrils, just as the incense rose in the temple in days of old. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, and we thank you for all the blessings that you give to us here in our congregation, here at this fellowship, and for this Sabbath day we thank you for these things and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to the book of Deuteronomy where I'll take a couple of minutes and talk about our Torah portion for this week. Our Torah portion is entitled Va'etchanan, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 3 starting at verse 23, and it's when Moses is pleading Now, first of all, the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to the children of Israel that are going to cross over the Jordan and enter into the promised land. It's an entire book of the covenant that he is reaffirming with that generation that will cross over to the promised land. Some of the people at that mountain were under the age of 20 when they heard the voice of God booming from the mountain at Mount Sinai. But most of that generation was born in the wilderness, Because this is the, remember, the older generation, they had died off, they had rejected the promised land, and their judgment was to not go into the promised land. So the people that are standing here hearing these words, many of them did not hear the commandments from Mount Sinai. And so the entire book is a confirmation of the covenant that God made with the children of Israel. The first couple of chapters is just a historical prologue to just give some of the history. Our Torah portion here, beginning at the end of chapter 3 and going into chapter 4, really begins the meat and potatoes of the covenant that God made with Israel. The title, Va'etanon, means, and I pleaded. And it tells a story about how Moses pleaded with God to beg him to see if he could go into the promised land. And the Lord rejected that. He allowed him to go up on a mountain and see the promised land, but Moses was not allowed to go in. That term I pleaded actually also sets the stage for the entirety of the words that are here from Moses here in the book of Deuteronomy. He's talking to this generation that's going to go into the promised land, and he's pleading with them to remember the covenant, to keep the commandments and the statutes and all the things that God has done for them in the wilderness, to remember them and to keep them. Of course, we all know the history and we know what happened. They went into the promised land and they fell away from the covenant. They were enticed by the idols that were in the land. Even though they were told to conquer them and destroy them, they still were ensnared by the idols and the, the ways of the nations and the ways of the world that they went into. Moses knew this. Moses knew that that was going to happen. Even so, he pleads in these words in the book of Deuteronomy for the children of Israel to hear them and obey them. Maybe that generation wasn't, maybe those words weren't necessarily for that generation, knowing that they were still going to fall away. But we can take these words and we can apply them to our own lives and we can turn back to the covenant that God made with our ancestors. Whether you're naturally born or not, because it was a mixed multitude that was hearing these words anyways, it doesn't matter what your heritage is. These words were for anyone who identifies and believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. It doesn't matter if you were naturally born of Israel. If you were there, if you hear these words, this covenant is for you to take hold. And Moses is pleading with them. Now, they didn't listen, but we can. We can listen to these words. And this, in our Torah portion, which extends... From chapter 3 all the way to the middle of chapter 7, this is when also he reaffirms the covenant where we have a repeat, a retelling word for word of the Ten Commandments that was spoken by God to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. We also, in chapter 6, we have this portion is most well known for having the Shema and what is called the greatest commandment of the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand. They shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. When the Messiah was asked what the greatest commandment was, he quoted this passage right here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This is the greatest commandment. This is the one that all of the other commandments hang upon. If you're not going to follow what God has commanded you to do and obey him, then you don't love him. But if you are going to do those things, then you have to first, you, you, you have to have made the decision that say, I love what God has done. I love the words that he has spoken, and I will obey them. That's why you obey anyone, anything. That's why children obey their parents occasionally. Is because they love their parents. Because they love their father, they love their mother, even when they go through the no stage that Titus is in, actually, right now. When there's, it's a hit and miss from day to day, it says, do you love your daddy? No. But then sometimes, maybe when there's something else going on, or I ask him again, hey, do you love your daddy? I love you, daddy. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's like we, sometimes even as children are disobedient, so are we to our own God. And the only reason why we do anything that they say We, do, we obey those words because of our love for the person that is giving them. So we have to love God. The second greatest commandment was love your neighbor as yourself. You don't have any kind of relationship or friendship with anybody unless you have an appreciation and a love for your fellow neighbor, for your fellow brother. This is how we get along with everybody. This is how we get along with God. This is how we get along with our fellow brother. The, on, the, on these two commandments, all the law, all the prophets hang. It's important that we pay attention also that the order in which we're supposed to love. We're supposed to love with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Do you think that order is important? That it's listed that way? It's also interesting in the gospel accounts, whenever it says that all three synoptic gospels recount this story, but each list is a little different. It's kind of strange. One of the gospels says, with all of your heart, soul, and mind. One of the gospels says, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And another one says, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then here in the Torah, it says, with all your heart, soul, and strength. Each list is a little bit different. The one thing they all have in common is they all start with the heart. The next one is the soul. The strength, the mind, those come later. Loving the Lord with all, your, with all your strength, with all your mind, do yourself, you can do this experiment. Actually, I don't recommend that you do, but you can run it through your head in a scenario right now. Go to your spouse and tell them that you love them with all of your mind. You know that you love them, and your mind tells you that you love them. Is that going to get you very far? No. Honey, I love you with all of the strength that I have. I'm going to go mow the lawn. I'm going to take out the trash. All of the physical labors that I exert around the house is going to be all I need to prove that I love you. Is that going to get you very far? No. <laughs> My sister says, yeah. <laughs> yes, that helps. It helps when, they, when, the, when the husband takes out the trash and mows the lawn. But the important thing... Is that when you actually go to your spouse, and if you want them to truly know that you love them, you say, I love you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with everything that is inside of me, my innermost being is where my love comes from. And that's the important thing. Love is a spiritual construct, it can't be quantified, it can't be measured, it can't be all of those other things, the amount of know somebody's knowledge can be measured. With testing and with books. The amount of somebody's strength can be measured and tested by how many pounds they can lift in a single exerted effort. But love that comes from the inwardmost being that cannot be measured. That has to be spoken, that has to be shared. And that's the kind of love that God want, commands us to have. And that's what it is: to love with your heart and your soul. It's also important. There's always two of everything, or there's always two reasons for everything. Like I said, there's two reasons to pray. There's, we pray because we're hurting. We also should pray in good times. There's always two things that we have to keep in mind. We also have two houses. Here at HFF, we talk a lot about family. I give a lot of scenarios with husbands and wives and loving our children and things like that. But we all have a spiritual house as well, that Hebrew word for love, ahav means the strength of the house. If you look at the Hebrew letters, the aleph, the hay, and the bet. Strength of the house is love. And then your heart is the Hebrew word lavav, which is a lamed and two bets, two houses. And what you have is when you invite the Lord into your heart, then you invite the good shepherd into your heart. But you have two houses. You have a spiritual house and you have a physical house. What we have to do in our physical houses is make sure the Lord is present there that we're inviting them into our homes and that it's present when we speak to our spouses, when we speak to our children, and that's where we're exerting love there as well. But we also have to love in our spiritual house. When we go and when we pray to the Lord, we confess our love to him and we love him with our inwardmost being as well. We have to balance all of those things out in our lives. This commandment, the greatest commandment, is a commandment of the house, the physical one and the spiritual one. It says to put the words on the doorposts of your house, your physical gates, the physical doors. But you also need to put them in your, in your spiritual house, the doors and the gates. Everything that you speak, everything that comes out of your mouth should be the commandments and the word of the Lord and the covenant. Everything that you see with your eyes that you let in and out because your eyes are the lamp to the soul and they're windows into your spiritual house. And you need to guard those, and that's why you put frontlets between your eyes that you remember those commandments, that they are there every time you go in and out of your physical home, in and out of your spiritual home as well. Let us confess our love in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let us tell our friends and our brethren that we love them as well. Let us establish this greatest covenant, this greatest commandment between us and God, between all of our fellow brothers. Because if we can't do that, all the rest of the commandments, all the other things that we talk about and debate about and interpretations of other commandments, they mean nothing if we cannot do this one first because it says, on all the law and the prophets do these commandments hang. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for this congregation, this time of fellowship, this time that we can worship your name, we can hear your instruction and your teaching and your word. Father, we love you, we bless you, and thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, every week we also bless the kids. So let's have the little ones come on up. Let's pour out a blessing upon them this Sabbath day. All right, we can shift this talit toward the center because that's where the kids want to sit. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Let's pour out a blessing upon all of these beautiful children. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day and we thank you, Lord, for each and every one of these children, the, their beautiful faces, Lord, the brightness that shines from their countenance, Lord, that encourages us and strengthens us and puts a smile on our face as well, Father. We thank you, Lord, for each and every one of these children, Lord, the unmerited favor and grace that they are to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted their care to us, the parents, mothers, the fathers, any of the elders, Lord, even the grandparents as well, Lord. We thank you for the blessings that they are to us. Father, I pray that you would always give us the words of wisdom to speak life into them, Lord. That it would be your words and not our words, Lord, that we would always speak of your words, your commandments, your covenant, into their lives, Lord, so that they might walk uprightly before you. May we remember to share with them the stories of old, that they can learn of all the testimonies of all of those that have come before them. Father, I pray that you would bless the sons, make them as Ephraim and Manasseh, make them fruitful and multiply as they grow to walk uprightly before you. And may you bless the daughters to be as Ruth and as Esther, make them righteous daughters of Zion, Lord. And may your words of your mitzvot always be upon their lips. So, Father, we pray that you would pour out your blessing upon them, that you would lift up your countenance upon them and give them peace. We thank you, Lord, for all of our children here, and even the ones that are not as well. Father, we bless them on this day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen.
1: All right, well, real quick, I forgot to make an announcement, sorry, um, beforehand. The crying room and the nursing mom's room is no longer right there. Um, I probably should have said that before service started. Uh, we are in the process of combining the nursery and the crying mom's uh, and nursing areas. So there is uh, a temporary curtain uh, in the back half with all those nice little rockers and everything in the nursery right there. And good news is is that it actually is wired for sound, so you actually can hear versus a crying room that was supposed to be wired for sound, but it never worked right. So uh, so now, uh, anybody who uh, wants to nurse in a private spot, there is a private spot in the nursery. And most of you who are nursing have multiple children, too, so it kind of is like a win-win because all of the toys for the toddlers are in there, plus all the nice stuff. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll have like a nice little curtain area in there, um, and all that kind of fun stuff. So um, that'll be right out that door for there. So everybody doing okay today? I heard one amen. I heard a yab from back there. Everybody tired? Some people seem like they're tired. Philip's tired. Philip's very tired. Steven's tired, but he's smiling really big. So it's kind of like I'm I'm conflicted by your body language versus your head language. Yeah. So Isaac, you having a good day? Awesome. All right, so today I want to talk to you about uh, starting a revolution. Now, there's a couple of ways that we can think of revolutions, and one of the most common ways is military base. It's some sort of violence. It's some sort of taking up of arms. It's some sort of like overthrowing of government. I mean, we hear about that stuff all the time, uh, especially in the United States. The United States has a long history of uh, going into other countries that are destable and keeping them destable. And so, That kind of revolution is is the one thought. The other one is making a change in society, a radical change. So everybody's culture is a little bit different. Everybody's come from a different background. Not everybody's come from the state of Oklahoma. Most people have not come from the state of Oklahoma. And so the winds blow us in and keep us for a period of time, then the winds blow us out of Oklahoma. But in that time, There is a society that we're used to. There's a group of friends we're used to. There's a job we're used to. There's there's a whole area that we're used to. And so, interestingly enough, the Bible is just like that. The Bible is full of a bunch of people and a bunch of stories that have taken place that talk about people who never had a pulpit, but they started revolutions. Sometimes the revolution was started for good, and sometimes the revolution was used for bad. Revolution can be either way. But the Bible is full of individuals who had no official pulpit, had no official positional authority at that point in time, and yet they revolutionized their society. They completely changed, upended what was the status quo. Obviously, I could take the easy approach here and talk about Yeshua, and I could talk to you about everything that he did, and we obviously know that. Anybody who knows the stories of Jesus knows he revolutionized the whole entire world. Judaism at that point in time, uh, the Hebrews at that point in time, he came in and said, hey, you know, the best of rabbis, let me give you a whole nother interpretation. Matthew Vander a couple weeks ago did an amazing teaching on the radical rabbi. It's up on our YouTube page. And so if you didn't get a chance to hear that, go check it out because he talks in the context of exactly what Yeshua did through his life and what he called us to. And, A lot of times we forget that that is our calling. A lot of times we forget that everything we do can start a revolution for good or for bad. Now, you don't have to have a pulpit. You know, today I have a folding table with a really nice uh, black uh, elastic. I don't know what kind of fabric. Kimberly, what kind of fabric? Uh, Kimberly's out in the lobby. Uh, So I don't have a technically a pulpit. Babylon B would say that my theology is, is fairly flimsy due to the pulpit that is in front of me today. But in the Bible, there is very few times where it mentions a bema, a pulpit, a platform. In fact, most of the people who changed the world in the stories of the Bible had none of the above. Most of them were people that we would consider if they were to walk through the front door today... They would be we considered people that we would most likely not listen to. We would probably think they were uneducated. None of them had a, uh, a master's in divinity. None of them had a theological degree. They were fishermen. They were daughters. They were poor orators. Moses is well known that Moses had some form of speech impediment. And so, this is not somebody who, I mean, the United States of America now, you don't normally turn on to watch a pastor or a preacher who is a poor orator that you struggle to understand. Normally, we're looking for somebody who, who meets our physical, like, oh man, that guy dresses like me, I can totally relate, and then inspires us with how they speak. So, to Rico Cortez's point for about a month ago, a lot of them have the element of motivational speaking. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? No, I don't think it is a bad thing. Because ultimately, you have to be able to understand and be engaged by the person who is teaching you something. Or the Lord has to radically do something. Now, the Bible is full of stories of people where the Lord radically did something on their behalf. Adam and Eve, starting at the garden. Adam and Eve created a revolution. Now, their revolution was one that was started by disobedience to God. Because the environment, the life, the relationship they had with God at that point in time, the moment they made a decision to disobey what God had asked them to do, everything changed. They were kicked out of the garden. They were on their own. And all of the promises that were made inside of the the garden now had curses that were made. The little dragon-esque thing that was a snake no longer looked the same. Women suffered through childbirth. There were changes that were made in the garden during the revolution. We're still living out that portion of the revolution right now. Um, We're not back in the garden. I know a lot of Messianic teachers right now who are talking about in the garden. Back to the garden. We got to get back to the garden. Well obviously that has not been fully restored. So we're still living out in the current society the revolution that was started by Adam and Eve. And one day Mashiach will come back and he'll set it all straight. And we'll go back to the garden and we'll have that type of relationship with the Father. But it's not right now. Noah. Noah started a revolution. Can you imagine being Noah in the time with all the drunkenness, with all the sexual immorality, with all the killing and the murder and everything that was happening? Can you imagine Noah out there building an ark? Once again, let's put it in the context of today. So um, I go ahead and I hear from the Lord that he's going to do something with all of us. Everybody. The ones driving outside right now, everybody in this congregation, everybody online. And the Lord says, Chris, you got to build an ark. So I go. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call my friends. And I'm going to say, oh man, the Lord told me to build an ark. I'm going to build an ark. I need to get railroad ties and I need to get this and I need to get this and I need to get this and, to get this and I'm gonna build an ark. How many of you, if you received that phone call from me, would think that I have done lost my mind? Most of you would. You'd be like, well, what is this? is this a joke? Is this a prank? What's he is he okay? We should call April. See if the guy slept. Noah, during that time, listened to God built an ark, and set forth a revolution that completely changed humanity. God wiped out a lot of sin. God wiped out a lot of cultures. God wiped out a lot of things during that time. But because Moses listened to God, he started a revolution. Moses, well, Moses was a bad orator. Moses was not the guy you would think of who was going to go lead an army out of Egypt, and they weren't even really an army; they were a bunch, a group of people. He was not the guy who we would just, if we had to sit here and make a logical, rational choice. And those of you who know me, I'm very logical and very rational. That would not be the logical and rational choice. A guy who had some element of a speech impediment. A guy who really did not want to go. A guy who fled into the wilderness. And look at what God has done and continues to do through that man. Most of us would not be here if it wasn't through the readings and the writings of Moses. And returning back and seeking to figure out what exactly God is calling for us to do nowadays. Most of us would still be sitting in, in a Sunday church. Most of us would still be in the world, wherever the Lord came, reached in, and grabbed you. So Moses set forth a revolution, not only for the Hebrew people of his time, but for how many generations now? Because he was obedient to God. He was obedient to God, and through that, what God did is miraculous. So how about a couple of people in the Bible that you might be, maybe don't know quite as well? Jabez. Chronicles 4 tells us that Jabez had called on God to enlarge his borders and that he would be kept from pain and God had granted his prayer. Now, Jabez wasn't like a Moses. Jabez wasn't like, you know, a Noah. He wasn't Abraham. But Jabez called on the God of the Hebrews, the Israelites, and God heard his prayer and granted his petition and inside his world, he started a revolution. King Josiah. Now, this is another one of those interesting situations. My daughter is nine years old. King Josiah took over and started his reign at the age of eight. How many of you have an eight-year-old, either yourself or a cousin or a niece or whatever? Babysat. Anybody got an eight-year-old? A couple people have seen eight-year-olds. Okay, How many of you are going to follow that eight-year-old even with where they want to go to eat nine times out of ten, let alone let them run a kingdom? I wouldn't. I'll be brutally honest. I wouldn't. Would I? Would I let you run my house? Not a chance. Nope. King Josiah at the age of eight was running a kingdom. Now, 2 Kings tells us that he had done right by the Lord. And upon finding the book of the law, the high priest of that time had found the book of the law. Upon finding the book of the law and starting to read, King Josiah, now this is a young man. He ripped his clothes, tore his clothes, and started to repent. He found the book of the law. The high priest found the book of the law, presented it to him as king. And at a young age, he realized by reading, it, oh my goodness gracious, even though we're Israelites, even though this is a kingdom, we're not doing what the Lord has told us to do. We must repent. And he set forth the leadership to repent at a young age. And then he started to publicly read the book of the law out loud. And he made a covenant for that people with the Lord. That was a revolution in that time. Because even though they were Hebrews, even though they were Israelites, they obviously weren't keeping the book of the law in the way that King Josiah felt was necessary based upon what he read. So they had to make a change. And a leader had to stand up in amongst this crowd and say, I'm going to make a change. I'm going to honor God. And when he began to honor God through the public reading, God blessed Israel and his kingdom. Sometimes we forget that revolutions start with extraordinary people who appear on the outside as ordinary. I mean, let's just be honest. We can try to be super holy about this, but we judge books by their cover. If we didn't, people wouldn't work out. People wouldn't shave their beards. They wouldn't dye their hair. They wouldn't be worried about the clothing that they wear. All of that stuff is for us to feel good about ourselves and for us to feel good about what others might think about us. And the church is no different. So let's not even act like the church is. Because I can tell you when the women get together and they go out for a women's night, none of them are going out in their jammies. None of them are going out with their hair in their rollers. This isn't an Archie Bunker episode. No, they're getting dolled up. And if they're going to be gone for four hours, they're going to spend four hours to prep to go. Why? Because that is how we act. That is how we do approach things. And so we have to call a spade a spade and look at reality. We do care about what's on the outside. And the church itself cares about what's on the outside. There's a lot of focus on that. So we appear ordinary a lot of times. Oh, we wear the same shirts, whether it's buckle or American Eagle or it's Old Navy or it's whatever. Oh, I saw that shirt at Old Navy. Oh, dude, those are some cool boots. Like those types of things. So we're ordinary. There's nothing extraordinary about that. Any person who wants to walk into that store can buy that shirt, can buy those pants, can buy whatever, and look just like you with the clothing that they put on. The haircuts, the beards, all of that. There's tutorials on YouTube now. There's little things you can buy that make sure you have a perfect beard. There's paint that you can fill in your beard for men like me whose mustache will never ever connect. It exists. It exists. Why? So that I don't look ordinary, that I become extraordinary. I look like those people in the magazine. I look like those people on television. I look like those baseball players and those football players. That's what we consider extraordinary. It's not. That's considered ordinary in this culture. Extraordinary is somebody who's going to do something revolutionary. Complete change in culture, complete change in society, a complete about face. Somebody who's gonna stand up and lead to Shuva. Gonna lead them into repentance. Somebody who's gonna lead their church, their work, their friendship, their Bible study, their whatever, their co-op towards the feast of the Lord. And even more basic than that. The revolution of finding somebody who has no hope to live life in this realm. Let alone anything in the afterlife. And giving them the ability to hear Yeshua. To accept salvation. To develop the relationship. Because a lot of times we like to look at where we're at. And where we're at is we're obviously keeping the Sabbath Obviously, to some degree, we're keeping the Torah and that. And we have forgotten that first and foremost, there are people who have no salvation. The single greatest event to ever take place is when a man gave his life for the sins of every living, breathing human being. Who was, who is, and is to come. Conquered the grave, rose again, and is coming back. That's a revolution. That's revolutionary. That's why Moses and Yeshua, Jesus, are often compared together. Because look at what Moses is still doing. Right now in Israel, there are hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who gather together and read the words of Moses, who walk out the words of Moses, who say the ironic blessing, who go through these prayers, who go to the wall where the temple was. And tomorrow, there will be thousands upon thousands of people who will gather in a church service somewhere around the world, professing that Jesus is their salvation. Two amazing revolutionary things that not only changed the day and age of their time, But are still changing lives today. Sometimes we forget that the calling of the Lord comes in our chaos. Sometimes we forget that the calling of the Lord comes in our chaos. I'm still waiting on the Lord. I'm waiting on the Lord. Moses ran away from the Lord. Jonah ran away from the Lord. And we're waiting on the Lord. Just waiting for him to come back. I'm just waiting to see Jesus in the sky. We're just waiting. Nothing's different. Nothing's changed. In fact, most of us hit cruise control at least a couple times a week. Some of us more if we want to be honest. We just hit cruise control. What is the status quo? I don't know about you, but uh, I don't believe I was put on this earth to be ordinary. I believe that I was put on this earth to have a purpose. My purpose is different than each and every one of your purposes. My calling is different. My physical appearance is different. My mental makeup is different. My family is different. Each one of us are independent. Each one of us have a unique relationship with the Lord. But if we're really being honest with ourselves, most of our life is chaos. I mean, we're not sitting under a fig tree having a conversation with the Lord all day, not worried about finances, not worried about food. There's no manna dropping down. There's no water just being hand delivered to us while we're there. We're out there. We're sweating. We're working hard. We're developing relationships. We're tilling the soil. We're trying to make things happen in the chaos of, oh man, I'm running late for this meeting, or oh, I told my wife I'd be home at that. It's all chaos. It's just to what degree are you allowing that to affect you in your relationships, but it's chaos. This world right now, as we see it and how we live, especially in the United States of America, is basically constant chaos. And so a lot of times we think more on a prophetic element of chaos. That chaos has to be something has to blow up or uh, a tornado has to come through and devastate a town. No, we live in a constant state of chaos right now. Everything around us is a constant state of chaos. And sometimes we forget that it's in that chaos that the Lord has the calling. I would venture to believe that because we live in a constant state of chaos, more often than not, the calling comes in the chaos. Now, I want to tell you about an individual. His name is Robert Smalls. We set the the stage for you. It's 1862. There's a civil war taking place. There are a bunch of Americans who are fighting one another. And while there was many different things as to why the North and the South wanted to have their own government and wanted to have their own leadership be the leadership of all the land, one of the things that was brought out to light in that area was slavery. One of the things that is most talked about when it comes to the Civil War is slavery. Now, slavery, as we know throughout history, is not unique to the United States of America. It's not unique to Caucasians and African-Americans. Slavery has existed throughout all time. I shouldn't say all time, for a long time. It hasn't been all time. We know that there are are still slaves in some cultures today. People who are not free of their own to go and do whatever they want. There are cultures and people I know in other continents that still do this today. Now, Robert Smalls is, is one of many stories we could talk about, but he's a unique man. Robert Smalls was a wheelman on a Confederate ship. And there was about five other African-American slaves who were wheelmen on that ship. Now, that ship decided that it was going to port an unauthorized docking at a port. Now, all of the white members of the Confederate officers that were on that ship, they went in and decided that they were going to go have some fun. And so they did. They docked the ship. They went in and had some fun. And at that point in time, Robert Smalls did something revolutionary. Robert Smalls took control over that ship. And even though the harbor was booby-trapped with landmines, and even though there was multiple Confederate gunships, Robert Smalls was able to inspire the rest of the members that were left on that ship to run through that harbor as fast as they could out into the ocean and get away from the Confederate forces and finally be free. Now, this is almost guaranteed to be a suicide mission. Because let's say that Robert Smalls is able to get out to sea. Well, you're in a Confederate port. The majority of the ships, the majority of the weaponry, the majority of everything now is against you. Robert Smalls took that chance. Robert Smalls then sailed up the coastline, picked up his family and every member of the families of the other individuals who were in that boat. They were able to pick them up. They were able to head straight out to sea where they saw a U.S. naval ship for the Union Army. And while they were being chased by Confederate ships, shooting at them, they went full steam ahead. They didn't surrender, they didn't turn around, and they went full steam ahead until they were able to make it to the Union ship. And the folklore goes that the moment that Robert Smalls approached this ship and the Union general of that ship looked at him, the Union general being a white male leaned down and said, welcome, sir. And it was the first time that Robert Smalls in his life had ever been treated with any type of humanity. They went on to recruit 5,000 African American soldiers to leave the Confederate States and join the Union Army. They were also responsible for helping to basically take back the port that they left out of, which was a huge strategic change. In the war. Now, after the Union won the war, Robert Smalls went back to Georgia and he bought his master's home, the land, the home by which he was a slave. He then proceeded on to become a five time U.S. House of Representatives member. You know, some of us like to take and we like to say, oh, man, I, I hit my weight goal. Or, oh, man, I, I did a 30-day Bible study. Or we like to take small little goals that we set for ourselves and we like to champion those things. But then we stop. It's like we used up every bit of motivation to, be, to do something different and then we stop. Robert Smalls had done something revolutionary. When he saved and freed his family and five other members, families who were slaves. That was revolutionary. He didn't stop. He then helped recruit 5,000 African-American slaves to the Union Army who were all freed and empowered in the Union Army. He didn't stop after that either. He then, when the war was done, made enough money and enough prestige that he went back and bought the mansion by which he used to serve at. And used that property as a place to help other slaves who were transitioning during, after the war. Now that would have been enough. But then he went on to represent the United States in the House of Representatives for over five terms. The man started multiple revolutions. Now let us not forget that most of the people who were slave owners were Bible reading, Jesus professing believers. One of the most revolutionary things Robert Smalls did is he preached Jesus as salvation to every person he met. A man who had heard about Jesus and had atrocious things happen to him. At the hands of other individuals who profess to read the Bible, who profess Jesus to be the salvation, atrocious things that man saw, and he didn't walk away from God. And yet, if we pronounce a name different, or are we starting another church, we become weak. We become selfish. We become judgmental, which are all things that would lead to a hardened heart. Just like the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh when Moses came for the Hebrews. Most of the people in leadership of the Nazi army professed that Jesus was the Messiah and they read the Bible. And yet they slaughtered many, many, many Jews. Now, they started a revolution. But it was not a revolution, I believe, that honored God. However, think about the Jews now. Why would any Jewish person want to have any conversation with anybody from Germany? Why would any Jew at this point in time trust anything that came out of Germany? I mean, we look at the, psycho- the psychology of how the Holocaust happened. Why would they? And yet I don't see an awful lot of anti-German propaganda in Israel. I don't see any death to the Germans marches happening in Israel. They have started a revolution when the other people started a revolution that was not honoring to God. They have been revolutionary because they have done, just like Ephraim said this morning, they've loved their neighbor as himself. They have every reason not to. Every reason not to. To think that the Christians in the Middle East would sit there on camera and profess that Jesus is the Messiah, knowing that any moment they are going to kill their wife, kill their kids, or kill themselves. That's revolutionary. There's no pulpit, they have no official position of authority. But it's a revolutionary faith that they have. Each one of us interacts with hundreds of people a week, whether it be through social media, whether it be through your, your work, whether it be through your daily life. What revolution are you starting? Because, you know, I mean, if Old Navy is a revolution, I mean, we're all kind of following along. If uh, if Fox News is, we are, CNN, we're all, for the most part, engaged in something that already exists. So what revolution are you starting? What does your life say to the people that you see? Because if you want to be extraordinary, if you want God to use you, you can't continue doing the same things you've always done. You can't continue to put yourself in a place where your own heart's desires are the things that you chase after. You have to put yourself in a place where God is the one who leads you. And you have to start worrying about yourself. You know, I don't really believe in anything I've read in the scripture that when Moses was wandering in the wilderness, that he was really worried about everything else that was going on back in Egypt. The stories seem to tell me that the guy was having a serious crisis of belief. He had just killed a man. He's starting to come to a realization that I'm not an Egyptian. That I'm a Hebrew. That I have brothers and sisters. He's coming to this weird revelation of things that completely is a crisis of belief inside. And yet that's where he found the Lord. How many of us are going to walk up to a burning bush? Especially when the talks. I don't think I would. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. If I walked outside right now, one of those little tumbleweeds just stopped and lit itself on fire. And was like, Chris, take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. I'd be freaking out. Yeah, Moses went. Moses listen. Now there is a quote that I love so much and it pained me so much a couple years ago because you know we talk a lot about our walk. Like we do a lot of this but not a lot of this. Well there's a quote by Saint Francis that's normally used. It's actually used in a lot of Christian churches to say that well this is far more important than this. That quote is, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Have any of you ever heard that quote? Or heard somebody quote it? Problem is, is Francis never said it. There's no historical documentation to ever say that the man said it. Really great quote. Kind of like some of those that Abraham Lincoln talks about Teslas on Facebook. Really great quote. Just didn't say it. That hurts me. And the reason why? Is because it makes perfect sense. Hey, you know, focus your walk, focus your walk. And if you have to, talk. Problem is, is that's not what God said. That's not what the Apostle Paul said. He said that the walk is important, but it's by hearing. The Apostle Paul stated in Romans 10, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. It does not say that they may keep the calendar. It does not say that they may keep this pronunciation. It does not say that they would keep this, that they would keep that. It's that they would be saved. Let's not get the cart before the horse. Our works are not going to obtain a salvation. I cannot save myself. God is the only one who can give salvation. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Sometimes Paul just sounds like he's been hanging out with us in this century. Can you imagine what kind of, I mean, Apostle Paul, is he a brown boot guy or is he a black boot guy? I really would like to know what he would dress like in our culture. Because sometimes when you're reading his words, it's like, well, I see it now. I'm a part of it now. Christ is a culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Or who will descend into the deep. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Yeshua is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is the Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So it comes through the hearing Because of the preaching. Now we know that we can say things with our walk. And people can see that. And they can make judgment calls. But they can't hear what they're seeing. Completely different things. So is our walk important? Yes, of course our walk is important. Does that take the place of having to use your mouth to preach the good news of Yeshua? No. People need to hear. You can live the greatest of lives, the most righteous of lives. But if you don't speak, you're hindering the ability of another person to hear the good news and adjust their walk. Because it says faith comes through hearing of the word. You know, this is one of the things I always talk about when people say, well, I don't have to go to any type of church. You know, I don't have to go to any type of gathering and read the Word or talk about the Word. I just, Just me and the Lord in my house with my Bible. You're missing out on crucial elements that help you become extraordinary. Not ordinary. Why didn't God in the burning bush just go ahead and type out or hand out or write in the sand or something? Why did he audibly speak to Moses? Moses needed to hear. Why, at the foot of Sinai, did the Israelites tremble? And they're scared. They're like, Moses, you go, because they heard. And it was unlike anything they had ever heard before. It was the voice of the Almighty God. You don't need a pulpit, you don't need a church. You don't need a certificate to start a revolution for the Lord. Revolutions can either be positive or they can be negative. If you're going to start a revolution for yourself, you might as well remember what the Lord told us about Korah. And there's others. If you're going to start a revolution for his kingdom... We need to be focusing on what the Lord has told us. Each person in this room, every person online has the power to start a revolution. The Lord has given us the ability to have the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, live inside each and every one of us. The same power that rose Lazarus from the grave. The same power that a lady would bring her most expensive perfume into a room and and anoint him with that. The woman said nothing. But her faith was known. Each one of you has the power. Whether it's in your school, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your job. You don't need a pulpit. Your life is a pulpit. Your life is a position that people look. You have developed relationships with individuals who love you, who respect you, who look to you Your life is that pulpit to them. They're constantly looking at you. What are you doing? Are you going to run like Robert Smalls did? To help others and to drastically change the world? Or are you going to be like the Confederate Army who just wanted to go drink, smoke, and I'm guessing whatever else they wanted to do? That was the standard for the soldiers, And yet Robert Smalls took a chance. God has given us the commission to go into the world and preach the good news of Messiah. To preach the good news that there is hope for salvation. He's given each one of you a voice. He's given each one of you an area to operate in. You may be the person the Lord has called to radically change the way somebody experiences God. And some of you are still waiting for a pulpit. You know, in the United States of America, we are blessed. More than many other cultures, more than many other countries. And yet in the United States of America, we have too many ordinary ministries. We have too many ordinary believers. We have too many ordinary people. And meanwhile, we also have a very large population of people who are dying, who are starving, who have no shelter, who have no hope. We must remember that if we want people to understand the blessings of the Torah, the blessings of the Old Testament, the blessings of the Feast of the Lord, they must first see the one who gave us the law. And that was Messiah. They must first see the spirit by which that law was given. It transcended time. In our minds, it's all time. It's a chronological book. The Bible is not a chronological book. It's just not. It doesn't even fit. That's why you got Messianic people trying to take passages out of the, book, out of the Bible, try to make it a chronological book. It's not. It's not a chronological book. God transcends time. Some of us have to remember the spirit by which God called Israel to the feast. Some of us have to remember the spirit by which God gave the Torah. Then we might be able to step out of what has been considered ordinary and become extraordinary. Some of you are waiting for your pulpit. And you've had it the whole time. The question is going to be is, are you going to revolutionize the environment that the Lord has put you in? Or are you going to let it be ordinary? Honestly, I believe as I look around our movement, as I look around the status of of believers today. And I'm ready for the revolution to start. Because I see a lot of similarities to the culture and the time by which Yeshua came the first time. And when he came, he revolutionized everything. The smartest of men, the smartest of leadership. He said, ah, I know you've heard it said. But I tell you. It's time for the same revolution that started with the birth of Jesus. To be reawakened in the hearts of all of the people who have been born again with Jesus in their heart. And then each one of us will be people who will start a revolution with the pulpit the Lord has given us.
0: If we could all rise, please. And the Lord spoke in a motion and said, Tell Aaron and his sons. This is the way you shall bless the children
2: of Israel. <laughs> kha vukhne panah L'cha shalom. Bashim Yeshua, Mashiach, Sarha, Shalom, Shalom.
0: May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, Shalom.
2: turning over every stone hoping to find salvation in a world